Pastor John is preaching on Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 this morning. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy words, and mightest prevail when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. So the text ends, their condemnation is just. Whose condemnation is just? Well, we will see. And we will see why their condemnation is just. And so this is an incredibly relevant text for you because a judgment is coming. Verse 6 Otherwise, how will God judge the world? He's going to judge the world. Everybody will be judged, and you will either be condemned justly, or you will be saved mercifully. Which group are you in? How in the world did Paul come to pronounce this severe judgment at the end of this text? Their condemnation is just. What did they do? What did they say? What brought this down on them? What had they been doing with the word of God that caused him to cut it off right here and says, their condemnation is just. Father in heaven, as we get into this now, I... I plead with you, I cry to you, that everybody in this room would deal with this seriously. We will either, in a very short time hence, be found in hell or found in heaven. We will either be condemned justly or we will be saved mercifully. Father, this is weighty. There are not many more things right now more important than this. So grant for the next 25 minutes that we would hear. 
And that the Holy Spirit would brood, as it were, over this congregation to give a receptive spirit to truth. And let me, O God, please speak nothing but truth. Guard me from error. Be our teacher. Change our lives. Save our souls. Enable us to pass muster at the judgment through Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. Romans chapter 3 is opening now. And it's opening in a way that relates directly back to what he's just said in 2.25, 27. And he has said something that has created a great controversy. It's very controversial to say... In verse 25 of chapter 2, that Jews, if they don't keep the law, their circumcision becomes uncircumcision, which means they're virtually no different from Gentiles. And then to say even more in verse 27, that the Gentiles, if they do keep the law, by faith in Jesus, will be judges of the Jews who don't. So you have an exact reversal of what is expected, that the people of God will one day triumph over their enemies and judge with the Messiah. And Paul is saying it's going to be exactly the reverse for many Jews. This is absolutely unthinkable. And therefore... Paul has to deal with an objector here. There is a rising tide of, whoa, wait a minute here now, Paul. Because he's been in this debate many times in many synagogues. He's had to deal with these things. And so in verses 1 to 8, he takes a detour from his plan. The plan, you remember, is this. Enunciate the gospel in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Because in it, the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith to faith. So the gospel is the righteousness that I need to pass muster at the judgment. I cannot produce... I must have it given to me freely as a gift or I perish. And the gospel is Christ bought it for the worst of sinners and you may have it freely by trusting him. That's the gospel. And then 118 to 320 is all designed to show that we need that desperately. Gentiles are sinners Jews are sinners. We're all under the power of sin and therefore our only hope for eternal life, for forgiveness and for getting right with God is the free gift of the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. Detour. The detour is owing to this. Having argued that Jews need the gospel so much that they virtually are the same as Gentiles, objections start flying. Wait a minute. 
Don't you thereby undermine the whole Old Testament, which postured Jews in a very special position of the elect people of God. And you're treating them now like there are no advantages to being a Jew at all. That's the objection. Let's read it. Verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Now you can see what's up here. He's expressing in his own words what somebody is objecting in his mind. Or either, as he recalls from many synagogue debates... Your gospel has undermined the Old Testament teaching that the Jews are a very special and privileged people who have many advantages. God has chosen them out of all the world. He's given them many gifts and you seem to just level them out. And if that's the truth, if he undermines what the Old Testament teaches, if he undermines the elect position of Israel... There's no future for this gospel. There is no future for this gospel in the world. So he has to take a detour and answer this here. Verse 2 begins his answer. Are there any advantages? And he answers, great in every respect. And then he starts what looks like is a list. And he never gets beyond number one in the list. He says, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's a great advantage. They have the word of God. God gave them the law. God gave them the prophets. God gave them the writings. They have the oracles of God. And he didn't give them to anybody else in the world before the apostles came on the scene to write the New Testament. Now, he He said there's a list by saying, first of all, but he doesn't finish the list because he's on a detour. In chapter 9, 10, and 11, he deals with this whole issue of whether the Jews have a special place in redemptive history and how his gospel does not undermine their elect position. But here he's just parrying the response to try to get back onto the road. So he takes this little detour. He gives one example. Why don't you turn with me to Romans 9 and I'll read you the rest of the list. Just so you'll see what's coming. And if you wanted to later today, maybe you could go ahead and read how he deals with this huge issue of Israel's election in detail. But jump to Romans 9. He's talking about how his kinsmen are accursed and cut off from Christ and how he loves them and would be willing, if it were possible, to be damned for them. And then he says in the middle of verse uh, 4, is it, They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption. As sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, the fathers, theirs are the fathers. And then the biggest of all, from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. So there's the list that he never finished. Now go back with me to chapter 3. They have an advantage, Paul says. He is not denying a very special and remarkable place for the people of Israel. 
And yet his hearers are saying, wait a minute. You can't have it both ways, Paul. You can't teach in verse 25 and 27 of chapter 2 that Jewishness is no better than Gentilishness and they can be judged by Gentiles and on the other side say there is a covenant security for the people of God, Israel. You can't have it. There's a contradiction here. That's what Paul's up against. He's got to answer that. So here's his answer in verse 3. What then? If some did not believe, he's going to grant, going to grant half the premise. If some did not believe, indeed they have not, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? And yet, you have to understand, even if they are judged, because he's already pronounced judgment upon them, and he'll do it again and again. So you got these two things. Jews are, in large measure in Paul's day, unbelieving and perishing. Being judged even by Gentiles. And on the other hand, you have Paul saying, and God is faithful. God is righteous. God is true. God keeps his promises. God is a man of integrity. Person of integrity. How can this be? Verse 4, he says, may it never be. May there be no unfaithfulness with God. Even if some Jews are unbelieving, may it never be that God is unfaithful or unrighteous. In fact, in verse 4, he goes farther and he says, not only is God faithful and righteous and true in spite of the fact that some Jews are unbelieving, but he says he's faithful, he's true, he's righteous, even if every man is a liar and untrue to God. Verse 4, rather, let God be true, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Now that takes your breath away because I'll come back to this next week. We live in a time and in a culture that is so drunk with the centrality of the value of man and ourselves in particular and our rights and our virtues and our esteem that a sentence like this must land on us either with absolute incomprehensibility or rage. Because what this sentence says is, if every man is lost, God is true and loses nothing. God is not leaning on us for anything. Let God be true, let God be righteous, let God be faithful, let God be God, and every man a liar and perishing. And God will stand at the center of the universe, glorious, and every man in hell 
if it must be. Oh, how we think, poor God, poor God, poor God. Paul, the apostle inspired here, has a vision of the universe and of God's supreme central value in the universe that is so different than the atmosphere we breathe as to make many parts of the Bible unintelligible for contemporary Americans until the Holy Spirit transforms our values. That's something I will hope to return to next week, but I don't have time to dwell on it now. But that's an amazing statement. He is saying, all right, you call into question the faithfulness of God by saying some Jews are unbelieving and therefore I'm not treating Jews with the kind of favor. I say, may it never be. God is faithful. God is righteous. In fact, not only is he righteous, faithful and true if some Jews are unbelieving, but if every human is unbelieving. Now, how are you going to support that, Paul? How are you going to argue for that? And what he does here is remarkable because he quotes Psalm 51. Do you remember what Psalm 51 is? It's David's psalm after adultery with Bathsheba. Let me read you verse 4 of Psalm 51 because he only quotes half of it. Paul really has high expectations of his readers here. I'm just blown away. I'm going to spend almost all of next week talking about the implications of how hard this paragraph is. Let me read the whole verse, Psalm 51.4. Against you, O God, David cries out, having committed adultery, having murdered a husband. Against you, O God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then here comes the part that Paul quotes. So that, so now this results from his confession of his iniquity and his unrighteousness. So that you are justified when you speak in judgment against me. And blameless when you judge. Now, how in the world does this argument work? What is Paul doing in verse 4? Why does he bring in this quote from David? Let's, let's walk through the, the train of thought and see if we can get it. Verse 3. Okay, some Jews are unbelieving, and indeed, they are under God's condemnation. They're going to be judged by Gentiles. Yes. But that does not, Paul says in verse 3, nullify God's faithfulness, righteousness, truthfulness, integrity. In fact, verse 4, even if everybody is an unbeliever, God is not called into question. He stands, he's just, he's holy, he's true, he's faithful. His character never is impugned. Why? Because David said that God is justified in his judgment by the very sin that brought it on him. Here's the Jew... The king Jew, who is vindicating God in his judgment on him because of his sin. And thus David is saying, 
If I have sinned as I have sinned, and God judges me, he is righteous. So David will not buy their contradiction. David doesn't see it their way. That if God judges Israel, even the foremost of Israelites, that somehow their standing and his righteousness are called into question, David won't have it. And that's Paul's answer to the objection. Now at this point, I should think that probably in Rome, somebody, as the reader of this letter, took a breath. Only had one copy. People didn't have Bibles in their laps. Somebody said, whew, this is heavy. This is complicated. Doesn't Paul realize there's some children in the house? There are slaves in this room who never had the chance to go to school. They can't even read. This is big expectation, Paul. I think you better get back on the road, off the detour. We're getting drowned here by the complexity of this text. And Paul is not persuaded by that. Because he's got four more verses to go on the detour, and they don't get any easier. The implications of that, that there are children in the church, there are illiterate people in the church, there are simple people in the church. And God Almighty inspires Paul to write like this, that is significant. And I want to preach next Sunday on that mainly. What are the cultural, educational, personal implications of such a thing? Paul's been in too many debates to end here. He knows there's an objection that's going to be raised here. And before he gets back to verse 9, which is back on the road that he has planned out in the book of Romans, he's going to go a little deeper into the detour here, and he's going to answer one more objection. Now, this objection is absolutely amazing. They're not done yet. These imaginary objectors who keep saying, no, no, no. The next objection they raised is simply astonishing here. They say, okay, Paul. We hear what you're saying. You're saying that when we say judgment on Jews for their sin contradicts their elect status and God's righteousness in his covenant keeping, when you say, no, it doesn't, because David himself vindicates and magnifies the justice of God in his own judgment, you, Paul, involve God in a colossal contradiction. Oh, how so? Well, just like this, listen. If... David's unrighteousness, or our unrighteousness, say our unrighteousness, our sin, our adultery, is precisely what magnifies the justice of God and His glorious righteousness 
in judging us, then we're no longer the instrument of sin. We're the instrument of God glorifying. And you can't judge God glorifiers. Contradiction. Does that sound like a word game to you? That's a sophistry. That's called sophistry. It's a word game. It's reckless use of reason. It's the way people talk about spiritual reality when they have lost a handle on reality. Today we would call it spinning. Let's read it. I didn't make that argument up. It's in verse 5. Here it is. But if our unrighteousness, say like David's, demonstrates the righteousness of God when he judges us, what shall we say? Now, Paul gives his own answer here because he cannot bring himself to letting the objector who's arguing here have the say. He says, the God who inflicts wrath on such people is not unrighteous, is he? And they say, yes, he is. And Paul puts in parentheses, I tremble to speak like this. I speak like a human. I know that in even bringing up this kind of sophistry argument, I speak like a human. And he says, may it never be. May it never be that God would be unrighteous to bring judgment upon people whose sin vindicates his righteousness in judgment. He will not have it. Okay, you don't have it. But what's your answer? got an answer? And he does. The way he answers it for now, till he gets to chapter 9, is by showing that this objector has involved himself in three contradictions. This wordplay, this gamesmanship with godly things, which brings down his condemnation at the end of verse 8, has involved them in three contradictions of their own principles, and he takes them one at a time in verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8. So let's just look at them. Here's number one. He says, on your terms, this word game that you're playing that says God can't judge Jews... Because if he judges them because they are sinners, and David says that their sin highlights his justice and his glorious righteousness, then they are God-glorifiers, and it would be a contradiction of him to judge God-glorifiers. If that argument holds, he can't judge the world either. That's verse 6. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? And you know he's going to judge the world. You objectors, you dialoguers with me, you manipulators of language, you know he's going to judge the world. You want him to judge the world. Let the Gentiles be damned. 
But if the Gentiles are going to be damned, you know good and well God's going to be just in doing it. And their sin will be that which highlights His justice as He brings judgment upon them. But that too would be impossible on your terms. And therefore, God can't even judge the world. And therefore, you've got to rectify, change your whole theology if you're going to play with games and words like you've been playing. That's His first response. Here's his second response. Take me, for example, he says. Take me. Think about Paul. You don't like me. You think right now I'm lying. My gospel is a lie. My dealing with Israel is a lie. You think I'm unrighteous. Now tell me. Am I going to be judged as a sinner? Why do you call me a sinner? Why am I still judged as a sinner? Because on your terms, not even Paul can be judged. You must start blessing me. Play your game. Bless me. Affirm me. Liar. Glorifying God. Unable to be judged. Speak on, Paul. That's verse 7. Let's read it. But if through my lie... The truth of God abounded to his glory. Why am I still judged a sinner? On your game. Your game. Your sophistry. That's your second contradiction. You shouldn't be upset with me. You should be thanking God for my message. It is so full of lies. Because I'm vindicating God as he judges me. Which means he can't judge me. It is a game, folks. It's a game. Lastly, on your terms, let's all just go on sinning. That's just sin. Your whole point is our sin glorifies God's righteousness. When he judges, and so, since we are really God glorifiers, he can't judge us. So, let's just all be about the business of sinning. So that God gets more glory by our sinning and thus can't judge us. And that's verse 8. Why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, Let us do evil that good may come. He's going to take that up again in chapter 6. To all of this, he says, and now he's done, and he'll get back on the road. To all of this, he says, their condemnation is just. End the paragraph. Whose condemnation? People who trifle with the word of God. People who play games. People who are cornered because something that they see in scripture. Here's a true thing. God chose Israel. They're his special chosen people. He loves them and he's a man of integrity. A person of integrity. And over here, judgment upon many Jews even by Gentiles. And they look at these two things, both they see in the Old Testament and now in Paul's mouth, 
And they can't fit them together. And so they abandon one of them. And inevitably, when you abandon one thing in Scripture that doesn't seem to be reconcilable with another thing, you become a sophist. Inevitably. You start playing word games. You start using language and quoting Scripture. And people look at it and say, that can't be what that text means. And the language becomes convoluted. Let them be accursed, he says. Their condemnation is just. I close with one little story from Jesus. You think, you think this is a small thing to the Apostle Paul? Was it a small thing to Jesus when he ran into people like this? You remember this story? They came to Jesus testing him. People who had lost reality and were using religious language expediently not to reflect truth, but to accomplish political purposes. They say, Jesus, tell us by what authority you do these things. And now he says, you tell me something. The baptism of John, was it from man or from heaven? And they go off and we get a little microphone in their huddle. They say, now if we say it's from heaven, he's going to say, why didn't you believe on him? And if we say it's from man, the people might stone us because they think he's a prophet. So what are we going to do? Well, let's say we don't know. Okay. We don't know. And Jesus does not smile. He hates expedient language that's politically driven. And he says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In other words, I don't deal with people like you. Their condemnation is just. So, my closing exhortation is, don't trifle with the Bible. When you find a truth in the Bible and you are persuaded it is a truth, and you find another truth in the Bible and you are persuaded it is the truth, and you're having a hard time bringing the two together, don't sink into sophistry by abandoning one or two. Say, oh God, I will wait and I will be patient and I will study and I will pray and I will listen and I will look to you and I will trust that someday, somehow, these two true things will cohere and be reconcilable. Help me, oh my God, to know how to live in this tension. And you will be safe. You'll be safe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us for trifling with the word of God. Forgive us for playing games with words, with theology. Grant, I pray, that we would be humbly devoted to what you say and what you mean. And that where we don't understand, we would simply put our hands upon our mouths and say the secret things belong to the Lord. And Father, I pray that any in this room who has 
trifled with you would feel welcomed at the cross because there is forgiveness for the worst of triflings if we will but come and repent and believe. So as we close, draw us all to yourself. Cleanse us through the blood of Jesus. Take away our anxieties. Grant that we would cast our burdens upon you. Let us be established in the truth. Let us handle your word with humility. Let us open our mouths at work this week and speak of the glories of Christ. So magnify yourself in our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Let's stand for a benediction. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face and light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. Take away all your anxieties. In Jesus' name. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.